It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Elizabeth Dunn is a happiness researcher and a psychology professor at the University of British Columbia. She studies how time, money, and technology shape human happiness. So what is the link between money and happiness? Money is pretty good at preventing you from sadness. So like bad stuff happens, money provides a great buffer that can just fix things. What it doesn't seem to do so well is give people more sort of enjoyment, more smiles, more laughter. Today, Dunn pulls back the curtain on the science of spending. She explains how you can get the biggest happiness bang for your buck. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. In her research on happiness, Elizabeth Dunn has discovered some fascinating things. For example, as people become wealthier, they feel like they have less time. Dunn blames a perceived association between scarcity and value. So when something is very scarce, we tend to perceive it as valuable. And conversely, when something becomes valuable, we tend to perceive it as scarce. So there's this kind of interesting bind whereby financial affluence can actually erode our sense of time affluence. Dunn sits down with Robert Frank, an economics professor at Cornell. Frank also writes the column, Economic View, in the New York Times. Their conversation about money and happiness is led by Adrienne LaFrance, executive editor of The Atlantic. Here's LaFrance. So I want to start with a somewhat controversial statement, um, which is that it seems from both of your work that you could make the claim that there's a, a weak link between money and happiness. That is indeed a controversial statement. Uh, and there are two different ways, basically, to look at the link between money and happiness. One is to say, as a country's income grows over time, and we've got a slide I think we can put up for this, as a, as yep. a country's income grows over time, there doesn't seem to be a very pronounced tendency for average happiness levels to rise over time. So, so the happiness curve, uh, I can't see yeah, it. I don't actually know where the screen is, but we do have a slide, a drawing that Bob just did. Okay, good. <laughs> is it up there? Yeah. So, so happiness is flat. You'll see in the left panel, income's rising. Uh, but then if you look at the income versus happiness relationship a second way uh, at a moment in time and compare the happiness levels of low-income people to middle-income people to high-income people, invariably there's a pronounced upward slope to that trajectory. The, the rich people aren't all happy. Many of them are miserable. Uh, not all poor, poor people are unhappy. Many of them are very happy. But on average, rich people are much more content with their circumstances than poor people. So the income versus happiness link speaks with two voices. When everybody gets more income, people seem to adapt. The context stays the same. Oh, I like being in the top 1%, and I still am, so I'm as happy as before. But when you move up and down vis-a-vis others, uh, the context shifts radically, and you're either more happy or less happy. So that's the basic uh, reading of the data as I see it. Uh, there's still some controversy about it. Well, and I would just – you guys can hear me, right? Okay, yeah. Um, I would just add to you it um, – depends to some extent on what aspect of happiness you look at. So um, uh, in some of our work, we've seen that money is pretty good at preventing you from sadness. 
So like bad stuff happens, money provides a great buffer that can just fix things. What it doesn't seem to do so well is give people more sort of enjoyment, more smiles, more laughter on a typical day. And to me, that's been a kind of puzzle that's inspired some of my work is to try to figure out like, wait, money is kind of amazing. Like it should be able to do this for us. Like why are people failing to like buy more laughter and smiles and enjoyment with all of these piles of money? Well, and that goes to the point of sort of this idea that if money isn't making you happier, maybe you're not spending it right. And I know that's a lot of, of what you look at in your work. How should we be spending our money to be happier? Uh, well, we've uh, tackled this question in a number of ways. Uh, in some of our first work on this topic, um, uh, we, we started doing it actually uh, when I was in my late 20s, and I suddenly, for the first time, started actually earning money. And I was like, what do I do with this? Like, money's appearing in my bank account. I'm used to, you know, I'd been doing a PhD, so I was accustomed to just kind of like having enough money to survive, and that was it. And suddenly, I had more than that. Um, so I was curious, you know, how could people get more happiness out of, out of money. Um, so what I did was just to basically um, have my research assistants walk up to people and hand them money and then tell them how to spend it. Um, and so when, in one of our first studies, um, we went up to people and gave them either a five or a $20 bill, which we asked them to spend by the end of the day. And there's some work suggesting that actually helping others, being kind to others is a really good way to feel happy. So I thought, well, what if people use that money to, to help other people? So we assigned half our participants to spend the money on others. We assigned half the people to spend the money on themselves. And then we just called them at the end of the day and asked how happy they were. And what we found was that people who'd been assigned basically by the flip of a coin to use their money to help other people were actually happier at the end of the day than people who'd been assigned to use the money on themselves. Would that, <clears throat> excuse me, would that hold true if you increase the amount? So like, if you have $100,000 to spend on yourself rather than someone else, are you happier spending it on yourself? So unfortunately, we have not yet been able to conduct that study. If anyone would like to fund it, I would be very happy to conduct this study. Um, we do see, you know, when we look at um, larger amounts of money, one way that we've gotten to, to do that is just to ask people to look back on... Um, times where they've spent their own money on others. Um, and we've conducted studies in places like um, Uganda and South Africa and asked people about amounts of money that for them felt like a pretty significant outlay. We've looked at people who report struggling to meet their own basic needs, struggling to put food on the table. Um, and even in that population where people really are, um, you know, need that money, we still see that people feel happier when they think about a time where they used their money to benefit others rather than themselves. And this dovetails with a lot of the work that you're thinking about in terms of the connection between happiness and how we think about how to be happy and sort of humans not being generally great at predicting the outcomes that will benefit us best. Yeah, we, we're, we're evolved creatures. And I think one of uh, Darwin's central insights was that the nervous system and our motivational structures didn't evolve to make us happy. They evolved to urge us to do the things that would enable us to acquire the resources necessary to survive and reproduce to get our stuff into the next round. And under the really competitive conditions under which we evolved, uh, I, did any of you go to Lori Santos's talk yesterday? Uh, you, you'll remember that she said, you get, you get a new thing, you're thrilled with it, you're, you get used to it quickly, and then you don't care about it anymore. Uh, 
That's not a very good brain structure for making you happy, but it's a great brain structure for getting you to continue striving. Uh, you've got so, to make the next step to move ahead, or else you'll be overrun by a competitor who does make that next step. So uh, there are lots of interventions, and, and uh, Lori Santos pointed out the number of them that we could do to try to defeat some of the things that make us unhappy. But I think it's important to reckon with that fundamental problem. Are you saying that happiness is a form of weakness evolutionarily? <laughs> No, I think many of the things that make us happy are also evolutionarily in our interest. Uh, Sex makes us happy. Uh, We don't have sex to have babies. We have sex because it makes us happy. Uh, And so, no, there there are just competitive situations where what you feel impelled to do, uh, if everybody does it, doesn't make people happy. You, You all do it. It's hard to do it. You expend the effort and then it's like you're on a treadmill. You don't get anywhere, and you're not any happier. And, Liz, you, you've done research into how the more competitive success a person has, the more what they need to be happy changes, like your, your work on time and happiness. Yeah, so one thing that we see is that um, as people become wealthier they tend to feel more pressed for time. Um, and so you can imagine that you know, as you're uh, making a larger income, there's more demands on you, and this could explain the relationship. But there's actually some really cool research suggesting that you can even just bring in undergraduates to the lab and ask them to do some work and tell them how much their time is worth. And if you tell students their time is worth $9 an hour, they feel like they've got plenty of time to do these tasks, everything's good. Other students, you tell them, your time is worth $90 an hour, which for an undergraduate is like, oh my gosh, you know, this is like a huge amount of money that my time is suddenly worth. Okay. You ask them to do the same amount of tasks for the same amount of time. They feel like time squeezed. They don't have enough time to do it. And so um, this suggests that like when our time becomes worth a lot of money, it can make us feel like we don't have enough of it. Um, And that's kind of weird, right? Like why would that be? But there's this very well-learned association between scarcity and value, right? So um, when something is uh, uh, very scarce, we tend to perceive it as valuable. And conversely, when something becomes valuable, we tend to perceive it as scarce. So there's this kind of interesting bind whereby financial affluence can actually erode our sense of time affluence. So if you have all the money in the world to pay other people to do things for you, how do you weigh the balance um, <clears throat> or how do you make decisions about what things to do for yourself? If, if you're trying to maximize happiness. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we shouldn't buy our way out of everything. Why not? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, in particular, so our research suggests that people who use money to buy themselves out of the stuff they hate doing are happier than those who don't. And this relationship holds up even after you control. Like, you guys could all, like, name various things you think I should control for. And I promise you we've tried controlling for these. So, um, this is a pretty robust relationship um, but you know, we specifically are looking at things people don't like doing, right? So, um, you know, I think most of you could probably think of something that like takes up a lot of time for you that you dread doing and it's just worth going, okay, you know, could I pay somebody else to do this for me? And we've actually looked at this not only with sort of thousands of people and pretty representative samples, we've also looked at it with over 800 millionaires in the Netherlands. And what we find is even in that very affluent sample, about half of our millionaires report not paying anyone else for help with something they don't like doing in a typical month, which blows my mind. Like I keep thinking maybe we asked the question wrong or something, but 
Anyway, that's what we see. And so it does suggest that there's this kind of unrealized opportunity for people to um, buy their way out of the stuff that really brings them down, right? And that varies from one person to the next. So I hate cleaning, but like other people I know, it just baffles me, but some people enjoy cleaning. So they shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't just automatically buy your way out of cleaning if that's something that gives you a sense of control or whatever. Um, but uh, the things that like really bring down some sort of most negative moments of your day, like if you could buy your way out of them, our research suggests that's a pretty effective strategy for promoting happiness. You mentioned the Netherlands, um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of rather than the individual happiness that we're all often focused on, the the broader sort of where we are both as a country in America and across the world, and it seems from a lot of recent research that Americans are less happy. Um, And I wonder why that is. (laughs) It's a big question. Um, And how it compares with other regions. Uh, If any of you went to Eric Kleinenberg's talk yesterday, he talked about the, the... civic benefits and happiness benefits people get from public investment, in particular creating spaces where people can congregate together, libraries in particular. Uh, And he asked us to imagine going and pitching an idea to spend lots of money on that to the president and and what would be our likelihood of getting a positive response on that. Nobody, of course, thought there'd be any movement. Uh, We're not willing to invest in those things, even to the extent that we once were, but the evidence that we see from cross-country studies suggests that the mix of private and public consumption is one of the main determinants of differences in cross-country happiness. Uh, And so here's a thought experiment. We've got two separate worlds, high tax in one world, low tax in another world. In the high tax world, the wealthy can't afford to drive Ferraris, uh, $300,000 Ferraris, they're forced to drive the lowly Porsche 911 Turbo. Uh, the, the low-tax world, the, the, the rich are flush, they buy the Ferraris, uh, and so then the question is, who is happier? Uh, we have absolutely no reason from the data to think there'd be any measurable difference in the happiness between the two rich, rich sets of drivers. They don't see one another. Each one knows that he or she is driving the best car out there in that environment. Uh, so as far as we know, if everything else were the same in the two worlds, they would be equally happy. But of course, everything else wouldn't be the same. The high-tax world has a lot of revenue, so adopt the very most cynical view you will about how inefficient government is. At least some of that extra money is going to be spent on public investment they will maintain the roads uh, more uh, assiduously. So the real question is, who's happier? The, the Porsche driver in the high-tax society who's driving on very well-maintained roads or the Ferrari driver, like uh, where we live, who's driving that Ferrari on roads riddled with foot-deep potholes? There's absolutely no reason to even think about the question. Every, everybody knows the answer to that question. And so making the mix between private consumption and public consumption different is the, is the surest step that we can actually point to that, that would make a big difference. Can I just riff on that car example? So there's actually some really cool research um, from the U- University of Michigan where um, they looked at drivers um, and um, asked people how much they'd enjoyed their last, the last time they drive their car. Um, and what they discovered was that there was actually no relationship at all between the blue book value of drivers' cars and how much they reported their last drive. And that's, again, like super weird. Like, why would that be? 
I, I, you're talking way nicer cars than I have any direct experience with. <laughs> but like, you know, if the Ford Focus versus like, uh, I now drive a Honda Civic that I think is really nice. Um, so <laughs> um, uh, there should be a difference, right? But but the problem is that we have our cars all the time, so we get used to them. And anything that we just have all the time is really easy to adapt to. Um, and so. I'm not sure I would agree. Like, I think that it definitely applies to the car example. I think there's other things in life, like maybe buying your way out of the things you hate doing, yes. where having more money, I think, really does make a lasting difference. Um, but certainly with those luxury goods that uh, we have in a, in a very permanent way or a very lasting way, that seems like an easy area to, to cut back and invest in the roads. So here, here's a... Thought experiment exactly to that point. You're, you're thinking about upgrading your old, uh, for, beaten down Ford uh, Fairlane. You're going to get a, a, a new sports car. You go in, you take a test drive, you, you, you uh, spend 30 minutes behind the wheel, and it's just uh, unbelievably fun for you. Uh, you know that to meet the payments on that car, you're going to have to work Saturdays uh, uh, to earn enough money. To do that, that means you won't be able to accept this invitation you got last week to go on a weekly fishing trip with several several of, of your friends. And so you said, well, I'll try that out. So you go on the fishing uh, uh, trip one Saturday. It was okay. You had a, had a pretty good time. And so I'm getting the car, uh, comparing the, the, the immediate emotional reaction. And this goes to Adrian's point about whether we can forecast our future happiness. What we don't forecast is that the car, all the things that made us so happy and excited about it, we're going to adapt very quickly to, and that shows up in, in your survey data. The, the fishing uh, venture, uh, that's like uh, the first day is the worst day. You get to know these people better. You tell stories. You, I remember when uh, John Belushi used to come out on Saturday Night Live in his samurai outfit, samurai plumber or whatever. Uh, that was kind of weird the first time I saw it. But then after three or four episodes... All you had to do was see him in his samurai road, and you were just convulsed with laughter. What's he going to do? That experience gets better over time, and and we don't anticipate that. Well, I want to go back to the difference between sort of buying experiences versus buying goods. But before that... um, we, you talked about how a person might adapt to a new car and it becomes less exciting over time, but wouldn't that hold true, too, for better roads or access to libraries? Or why don't we adapt to those sorts of quality-of-life differences and feel the same amount of happiness because of it? I mean, Liz can speak to this. The fact is we adapt very differently in different domains. I mean, I think that's a great point. I think there, you know, some adaptation to those public goods should occur. And some does. But but the extent to which we adapt, noise, uh, if there's a loud noise in the background, you adapt to that. Uh, After a while, you're not even conscious of it. If it's a loud but intermittent noise, you don't adapt. You not only don't adapt to it, you become sensitized to it over time. It it creates a bigger spike in your blood pressure when, when it's in the background. Uh, the 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 guy who took months to annoy you at the office, uh, now you just see him coming and you you immediately get get sensitized. <laughs> There's adaptation in different domains that just occurs at different rates. Right, and Christie at the University of Chicago has made this interesting distinction between goods that 
truly have inherent value. So for example, temperature is a great one. Like, you know, it's a very comfortable temperature in here right now. At least for me, I have a jacket on. Maybe if you're in like a little dress, it's not, but, um, and so temperature is something where having it be in that comfortable range, like is inherently nice versus having it be 110 degrees. Like people who live in Vegas that I know say you get used to it, but like, that's a tough thing to adapt to, right? Um, it's kind of fundamental to the way our, um, bodies are constructed versus other things like uh, the quintessential example is like the size of a diamond. Who knows what size a diamond should be? The only way I know is by looking at other people that I see here and realizing that mine is very small. But if I go to academic conferences, I feel pretty good about it. So um, there's, <laughs> there's an important distinction then between those two kinds of goods. And for policymakers in particular to think about, can we invest in the types of goods that have this inherent value rather than the types of goods that are only meaningful to the extent that we compare ourselves to others. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Most of the conversations you hear in the podcast are taken from the stages of the Aspen Ideas Festival, an event that happens every June in Aspen, Colorado. The festival takes place just once a year, but the ideas are ongoing and available for free anytime. Watch and listen to a range of conversations on our website, aspenideas.org. Discover ideas about climate, politics, health, and civility. Aspenideas.org serves up captivating conversations and remarkable speakers. You'll discover ideas you didn't even know you were looking for on aspenideas.org. Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Adrian LaFrance. So back to experiences, it's, it's become sort of a common trope now, or, or well-established, um, accepted wisdom that buying experiences is, a, is usually, I think, a better path toward happiness than buying consumer goods, or that's certainly sort of what the younger generation is doing. Um, and I wonder where that breaks down, if there is any you know, contradiction in that finding, or um, sort of just your observations on how things are changing in that regard. Um, it's my colleague, uh, Tom Gilovich, who's done much of the work on this, and uh, you know, he and I have talked a lot about it. It's hard sometimes to, to actually say what is an experience. Uh, uh, somebody who has studied oriental rugs for, for decades and can uh, identify fine distinctions in where the dyes came from, you know, that's an experience. Uh, the person spending a lot of money on these rugs may be a, a high fraction of her income, but uh, to second-guess that I think would be wrong-headed. Uh, the... As a boy, I went to car shows. I could name every car uh, uh, that, that was ever produced and on the road in the 1950s. I went to Cuba last year. I, I was in seventh heaven seeing all the cars from my boyhood still on the road there. Uh, I, I eventually spent more on a car than, than the happiness literature would recommend, but... Uh, <laughs> For me, I don't think of that as a wrong mood. It's a hard question. Does it make you, you know, happy still? It, uh, well... Part of the reason it does is that I don't drive it for four months a year. Uh, and so hearing it crank up again in March, oh, I, I get really, really happy. And there is actually an exception in that finding. The researchers did find 
one exception to this rule, so where like fancier cars did make a difference for people's happiness. I said this recently, and someone yelled out Teslas. Um, but um, in fact, what it is is uh, joy rides. So when people actually take their car out for the pure pleasure of driving, then having that nicer car does make people happier. So if you're if you whatever you can do to have your attention be focused on it can bring out that pleasure of the luxury good. It's just not necessarily at the forefront for us otherwise. So buy fancy things that you can then experience. <laughs> it's the lesson. And can I add one more thing on experiences? Yeah, yeah so um, we wrote about, um, uh, my uh, colleague Mike Norton and I wrote about um, Tom Gilvich's work on buying experiences in our book Happy Money. Um, and shortly after the book came out, um, this really smart student in our grad student in our program um, named Aaron came into my office and he's like, um, so I think chapter one of your book was wrong. Um, it was called Buy Experiences, the first chapter. And he's like, yeah. Um, so he pointed out that um, perhaps all, a lot of this work on buying experiences had missed the sort of like low-level pleasure that a good material thing can provide um, because the, most of the research had asked people to look back on their past purchases. And it, indeed, people feel more satisfied with their experiences looking back on them. But, but these studies hadn't captured people's happiness in the moment. Um, so he set out to do this study that, let me tell you, you would not have wanted to be in because what we did was to start texting people three times a day for two weeks, beginning Christmas morning. Um, so if you were in the study Christmas morning, you would have gotten this text from us. We would have asked you to choose a, a gift that you'd received. And we asked half the people to tell us about a material gift they'd gotten, like um, you know, a, a new leather jacket or something. Uh, and half the people to tell us about an experiential gift, like um, a spa day or tickets to a hockey game or something. Um, and then we kept texting them over and over again and asked them, okay, in this moment, how much is this gift contributing to your happiness. And what we found was that indeed, you know, material things like do provide these more frequent doses of happiness. Um, so there's something to it, but experiences provided this more intense kind of happiness. So, you know, at that point we were like, okay, like actually maybe just, you know, experiences and material things produce these slightly different flavors of happiness. But then we followed up with people six weeks later and asked them, okay, you know, it's mid-February, how satisfied are you with your gift now? And even though the experiences, the experiential gifts had been relatively fleeting, people reported being more satisfied with them by mid-February compared to the material gifts. So that does suggest that these experiences just have this more lasting effect. When we look back on our lives, we're probably going to be more satisfied with those experiential purchases, uh, like coming to Aspen, than the material things. And we're going to move to questions in just a moment. I, I wanted to add to that. The, the research has also shown that many small pleasures, when you look at the material side, are more happiness producing than one large thing. Is that right? Yeah. And so, you know, the, again, the problem with one large thing is that you adapt to it, right? So the trick is to spend money in ways that, uh, sort of um, slow down the pace of what we call hedonic adaptation, this ability to get used to whatever we have. Um, and actually, one way to do that is just to uh, take a break from the things that you usually buy. So if there's something that you're accustomed to spending money on, if you can take a break from that thing, you're likely to come back to it with this renewed appreciation for it. So spending less money can make you more happy too. Yeah. So if you, and if you spend less money in strategic ways, like, so if you can think of, and this is like a kind of a fun game to play. If you can think of something you started out buying because it gave you pleasure that you no longer really notice, 
that can be a great thing to take a break from. Then you save money in the you know interim period, and if you choose to go back to it, you'll then sort of be kind of be able to approach it with like fresh eyes that can appreciate it the way you did originally. Any questions over here? We have someone. I have a quick question on your working definition of happiness when you're doing your studies. You've said um, satisfaction. You said pleasure seeking. So is there a working definition that you use when you're determining what happiness is? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, So uh, the definition that's kind of most commonly used in the scientific literature these days um, is that happiness um, includes three sort of key components. So one is life satisfaction. When you look at your life, do you feel like overall the conditions of your life are close to your ideal, that you're living the kind of life you want to be living? Um, And then how much positive emotion are you experiencing on a day-to-day basis? So are you laughing, smiling, all of this this sort of um, uh, emotional component? And then on the flip side, how much negative emotion are you experiencing? And just to be clear, we would never say that, like, to be happy, you need to never experience negative emotion. Everybody experiences negative emotion. But people who score really high on this overall sort of measure of happiness are those who are experiencing a preponderance of positive emotions relative to negative emotions and who feel this satisfaction with their lives. In general, these three components are like the triumvirate of happiness. They hang together pretty closely. And depending on the particular study, we might focus on one or the other, but over a whole body of research, we're trying to kind of capture all of them. And again, most of the time they hang together. One place where they tend to diverge a little bit, as I mentioned, is with um, income. So income is more strongly related, more consistently related to people's satisfaction with their lives. Seems to be particularly weakly related to this component of positive emotions. Other questions? Thank you. In the description for this morning's event, there was a line that really caught my attention that that, uh, commercials actually increase one's enjoyment of watching TV. And I was wondering if, if that's really the case. And if so, you could unpack that, please. It's like a delayed gratification thing. I was intrigued by that uh, statement in the description, too, and was hoping somebody might be able to tell me about it. <laughs> I'm hoping one of you would do that. I'll do that. Um, so this is uh, research conducted at uh, NYU. And um, the uh, in their work, what they find is that commercials can... Uh, increase the happiness that people derive from watching television because um, they provide a break in the experience. And so um, uh, this is one way, commercials can be one way of um, interrupting hedonic adaptation. So when you kind of get used to something, taking that break um, can be valuable. There is an important nuance, though, which is that if you're watching a show that's, like, completely engrossing, um, like, um, I, I am the one person that has never seen Game of Thrones, but I'm told that it falls in this category, or Homeland, or Billions, like, these very well-made shows that, like, constantly that do this process already for you. Like, they've done such a great job of... of keeping you on the edge of your seat that it isn't necessary. Where the commercials come in handy is with shows like um, some of the beautiful uh, shows like Blue Planet, those kinds of things where it's this gorgeous imagery of the earth and so forth. But it's like so beautiful that like you almost have to close your eyes for a second to to readapt. Or kind of like being in Aspen, it's kind of good to go underground for a little bit, so you can come out and be like, "Wow!" again. Um, so yeah, the, it's that kind of little break in this other very pleasurable, but otherwise, I guess you could say monotonous or just kind of consistent experience where these breaks come in handy. Other questions? 
You spoke to the comparison element in impacting our happiness. Can you talk about how social media and everybody posting their latest greatest is impacting our overall happiness? There's a, a mental health epidemic underway among college students today, and I think the people who've studied that uh, are, are fairly well persuaded by now that social media is a contributor to it. Uh, you, people do not put a random sample of their lives on display on social media. They put the things they want others to see. They don't want them to see you down in the, in the dumps or... or crying over, over some tragedy that you've experienced. It's always a, a, a vacation or, or a triumph. Uh, and so I think people do tend to think that they're doing worse relative to others than they actually are doing. That's a component of it. Uh, but I think there's a, a, a limit to which we can blame social media on that. I think you know, there's always been rivalry in the world, uh, and the rivalry that counts is about the things that really matter to people. And I think the the, the one big-ticket item is that every parent wants to send her children to the best possible schools. And every place in the world, it's the same. The good schools are located in the more expensive neighborhoods. And so if you're the median earner, to, and your goal is to send your child to a school of just average quality, I think we would look down on a parent who wasn't at least that ambitious. What you must do is buy the median-priced home for your area. Otherwise, if you don't do that, your kids will go to the schools with the metal detectors out front. So, of course, people are going to bid uh, to the maximum extent they can to get access to the best schools. But what, uh, it's not that they, they don't necessarily realize this, although most don't. Even if you realized it, when we all do that, all we succeed in doing is bidding up the prices of the houses in the better school districts. Half, half of all kids still go to bottom half schools, the same as before. And that's going to be true with Twitter, Twitter on the scene or with Facebook on the scene or without. And so I think those kinds of really big-ticket items uh, are not to do with social, social media. I'll just add that. So, you know, going back to uh, money, for so long there was this uh, focus on what is the relationship between how much money you have and your happiness. And we've tried to sort of shift the debate to like, okay, but what are you doing with that money? And so I think similarly with the debate over social media, so much of it has focused on like, how much time are you spending on social media? And that does matter, but increasingly what researchers are recognizing is that it also matters what you do with it, right? So in particular, um, it's really passive use of Facebook, for example, that seems to be associated with declines in happiness. And um, so this is where you're like scrolling through Facebook, seeing all the wonderful things everybody else is doing. That is not so good. In contrast, if you are actively using Facebook where you are sharing your own um, updates, receiving you know um, comments from others, commenting on other people in a supportive way, that you know then you're engaging in this form of active social engagement that is actually pretty much okay for happiness. It's not. It's not like huge, but it's like a, a zero to slight positive effect, whereas um, this kind of passive scrolling has these more negative effects. Unfortunately, what most people do with Facebook is passively scroll. Um, so what this suggests then is, and you know, when I, I first started re reading this research that was coming out on Facebook, I actually had my husband change my password. Um, then he forgot my password. Um, and so then I was just out of Facebook for a while, and I actually kind of liked it. And this is sort of a fun experiment you can do 
with yourself. I mean, I really encourage people to experiment on their own happiness. It's not that hard to do. You know, try taking three weeks off of social media and just see if you, if, do you feel better? Um, and then, you know, once you've kind of broken out of the habit, if you do want to go back to it, maybe try coming back to it in a different way, approaching it in a manner that's more active and less passive. But should we also be thinking about if, if say I buy an experience that makes me happy and then post it to social media and derive happiness from having done that, I'm also maybe making someone else who's passively scrolling feel unhappy. So I don't know. seems like we shouldn't just post. The, the engagement in itself is not a net positive, I would say. Maybe you should post unflattering photos of yourself. <laughs> All right. I'm on it. <laughs> we have a bunch down here. So you mentioned earlier that there's a correlation between buying your way out of the things you don't want to do and happiness. And I was wondering if the negative costs of that act, such as your ability to no longer tolerate certain tasks, such as like going to the grocery store, that's something I hate doing, um, would that lead to a greater hit to happiness in the long run, possibly? It's really interesting, uh, and it's always important to think about these kind of unintended consequences. Um, it's, it's certainly possible. I mean, we see in our data that, you know, people who are typically engaging in these behaviors of, you know, buying their way out of their, their dreaded tasks are happier than those who are not. So if there is a little bit of a hit that you take, because once in a while you have to go to the grocery store and it's the worst, like the fact that, you know, all the other times you didn't have to go seems to like win out. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting question if you're, yeah. If anyone's interested in pursuing these questions, we are taking grad students, so. <laughs> I thought it was interesting, the portion of the discussion about material objects and experiences, and I wonder if a piece of that dynamic is that once you've obtained the, the material object, if once the happiness sort of subsides from the capturing of it, you're forced to sort of look at this husk of something that once brought you happiness and now, you know, either sort of invokes guilt or the notion of diminished happiness, whereas with an experience, all you have is the memory. My other sort of comment that I'd be interested to get your take on is the notion of deciding to be happy. It's discussed as this like affirmal sort of smoke that's, you know, you have to sort of set up the exact right circumstances to have it arbitrarily like um, sort of arise as opposed to the notion of just taking control of the dynamic of happiness and just deciding to be happy. Your your first comment uh, was so on target that it could have been the abstract for the original Gilovich paper. Uh, it was exactly the narrative they offered to explain why experiences seem to matter more than, than goods. Uh, taking charge of your own happiness, I think there really are some... some uh, clever interventions you can do. Uh, Lori Santos mentioned yesterday the, the Stoics would meditate for 10 minutes in the morning about all the horrible things uh, out there, and then everything else by comparison seemed good for the rest of the day. Uh, that's a trick. I, I, it's like reading the news every morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't feel motivated to do that, but... Uh, <laughs> There, there are many of these tricks that work, uh, but the, and, and I'm a, a big fan of them when they work. My, my uh, uh, theme that I try to sound as often as I have an opportunity is that there are bigger opportunities uh, for improving happiness in the policy realm. 
that that if we just change the overall allocation of the national income between this and that, uh, where where the this and that categories are as best we can uh, learn from the determinants of not not just human happiness but human thriving, we would be much much better off uh, uh, than by any other inter- intervention that would be feasible. I just said I think I love your comment, the second one, um, and you know I think deciding to be happy is a little bit like deciding to lose weight. You know it's. It's a start, but it's probably not going to make much difference on its own. Um, so you really need a, a good strategy. Um, and so, um, you know, it's something that takes work. It, different people are going to have, um, a, you know, a different degree of uh, challenge in, in, in achieving that goal. We start, you know, there's a big part of happiness that seems to be genetic. That doesn't mean it can't change, but, you know, it's not it's not going to be as easy for some people as for others um so you know can we just decide to be happy well i think we can decide to pursue strategies that could promote our happiness and i think you know uh, there's al- there's also this notion of like living a happy life or something that you you have to do all of these things right and like you know find the right person to marry and get the right job and do all these things and actually those things turn out to matter a little bit but not as much as we think right so you know you can change your happiness today by just doing today a little bit differently right so for example we find in our work that um just chatting with the people around you can boost your happiness instead of staring at your phone. Um, You know, we find that just like giving a little bit of your money away can make you feel happy that day. Just doing something nice, like today, if you all find something, like just like do a little nice thing for something, somebody else, compliment somebody, express a little gratitude to somebody. Like none of these are that hard to do. Um, And in no way does doing those things mean we don't need to change our national economic policies. I see these things as being just totally complimentary things we can do. Um, But those are all sort of research-backed strategies that, again, aren't going to like change your life in a fundamental and profound way, perhaps, but we can change how much positive emotion you experience today. I know we have a lot of questions, so I want to keep moving. Um, in the middle here. Hi. Uh, this has been a really good talk. I had a question on, have you guys studied spin-related happiness across varying personality types? Um, for example, somebody who is naturally frugal, maybe spending would actually make them unhappy. And perhaps that was the case with those half the the millionaires that you guys studied. Like, they could pay somebody to wash their dishes, but it would make them happier to save that money. And I don't know. I was wondering if you'd studied that. Uh, That's a great question. So uh, there are substantial individual differences in um, uh, how frugal people are. And I think the most interesting, we haven't included measures of frugality in our work on um, buying time, but there is some really interesting work suggesting that um, in romantic couples, if you and your partner differ on your level of frugality, that this creates a legitimate challenge. Like that... (laughs) um, Snowing laughter. Yes. So, uh, you know, I think, and we, scientists have not solved this one yet, um, so I don't have an answer for you, um, but, um, you know, I think it's a good thing to recognize in yourself. I mean, I also think, you know, in our work on buying time, we do see that some people experience a lot of guilt about the notion of, like, buying their way out of the things they hate doing, and in particular, we've looked at a lot of individual differences 
is, I don't think we've looked at frugality, but we have looked at the Protestant work ethic. So people who have been raised really with a strong Protestant work ethic seem to have a particular proneness to experience guilt at the mere thought of paying somebody else to do something that they are capable of doing for themselves. And that does seem to slightly undermine the happiness that they would otherwise derive from from buying time. I mean, I speak a lot to financial professionals, and one thing I try to encourage them to do is to think about kind of trying to give their clients a little bit of permission. Like, you know, you have $10 million in net worth. Maybe if you hate mowing the lawn, you don't have to do it, right? Um, so to try to help people overcome uh, that that guilt, I think, can be can be a route to sort of pushing through that. Other questions over here in the blue shirt. Thank you very much for coming today. I'm curious, as, as employers, when we think about happiness, right now we deliver benefits to our employees. Do we need to think differently about delivering happiness and how we align what we deliver to our employees? Yeah, I think the, the U.S. is probably different from most other countries in solving this conflict I described earlier between what it makes sense for you to do as an individual and what it makes sense for us to do collectively. Uh, vacation time. Uh, it, 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 the happiness literature is very clear on the fact that if everybody had more vacation during the year, certainly that more than what we have in the U.S., people would be happier if they had more national holidays. They How much is the perfect amount of vacation? Uh, I'm getting ready to retire, so I'm thinking... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to every day being a Saturday. <laughs> but, but look, uh, if you're trying to get ahead in your firm... What counts is how, how much you contribute relative to how much the next person contributes. And if you take time off uh, on your own, there are surveys now that ask associates in law firms, uh, would you take a 10% pay cut if you could work 10% fewer hours? Uh, 95% of them said yes, they would do that in a heartbeat, but only if their coworkers did it. Uh, why? Because if you take time off and they don't, you're a slacker, you're not going to get... Uh, promoted to the next rung up on the ladder. And so the, you know, nobody regrets standing up if everybody's standing up to see better. If you, if you don't stand up, you don't see at all. So you're not irrational to stand up from an individual point of view, but it is truly irrational for everybody to stand up and be uncomfortable throughout the event. The way we r- reckon that kind of problem in the U.S. typically is to have employers regulated, and that's worked uh, up to a point, but I think uh, the countries that have achieved the greatest gains in happiness have national policies about leisure, uh, and every country, for that matter, regulates safety, which is another one of these individual versus group. If I take a riskier job to earn more money, I can bid for a house in a better school district. But you can do that too, and then we all end up with riskier jobs and we don't get what we thought we'd get. So mandating safety is another way that we try to solve that kind of collective action problem. So an interesting way that some companies have um, tried to solve this vacation issue is actually to offer their employees unlimited vacation. And that actually turns out to reduce how much vacation people take um, because now they don't have this anchor of like, oh, I should take three weeks. Um, So, you know, I think that's an an interesting challenge. A better solution um, was uh, experimented with at um, the Stanford's Department of Emergency Medicine. What they started doing, it's a really clever program. They started 
you know, noticing that um, academic physicians were asked to do all of these things that were really important for their organization, but were never rewarded directly. Things like, you know, mentoring junior colleagues, writing reference letters, serving on extra committees, all of these things, right, that really make the organization function, that have this overall good, but that don't get individually rewarded. So what they started doing was giving people um, time vouchers so that basically when they you know, mentored a junior colleague or did something like that, they would get vouchers for various time-saving services, like house cleaning services or grocery delivery services. So in essence, recognizing, hey, you are devoting some of your time to this organization. We're going to give you some of that time back and in that same currency, uh, which I think is a really, really clever idea. We have time for one more question. Uh, one subject that I didn't hear you guys touch on is risk. And is there a correlation with uh, financial risk and happiness? Do you want to say a little bit more about what you mean by what kind of risk? Well, I think that just that maybe risk, risks and experiences or, or risks and you know, financial, how you use your money um, among maybe wealthy people, among others who are maybe middle class or, or lower in income. The question just before involved risk of a different sort, and uh, what's known is that people who are behind in the score late in the game, uh, it's rational for them to take uh, risks. So a football team that's about to lose the game won't uh, execute the the play with the biggest expected value. It will have a high-variance play, uh, hoping to, to, to turn the tide. And I think we see some of that in the financial realm. If you're doing poorly economically, uh, you're going to lose probably in in whatever contest you think you're in. And so people will take very big risks in that situation. And the fact that everybody takes a bigger risk doesn't affect the aggregate outcome in any way. It it affects who's going to end up uh, with with a a hand good enough to win. So so we do try to limit risk for that reason. I was going to say, this may go back to the buffer that you talked about in terms of um, the risks that you take depending on the outcome um, and how well-positioned you are to take a risk, I'm sure, has a link to happiness. Yeah, and I would also say that um, there's some new new evidence that suggests that... Uh, for example, when people go from making like say fifty thousand to a hundred thousand, their happiness might go up by like say this much, right? But then when they if they suddenly go back down from making a hundred to making fifty again, their happiness actually goes down lower. So like you have a bigger loss than you did for the same amount of gain. So in essence, that suggests that taking a job, for example, that involves a lot of risk, like a job where you one year your salary could be a million dollars, but some other year it might be $100,000, may produce less happiness over time than taking a, a job that has a relatively low level of risk where you're going to have a more stable uh, lower level of income, even if the mean level, the average yearly level, is actually lower. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, thank you. Elizabeth Dunn is the co-author of Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Robert Frank is a professor of management and economics at Cornell University Johnson School of Management. He's the author of many books, including Passions Within Reason. Adrian LaFrance is executive editor of The Atlantic. Their conversation was held June 25, 2019. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. 
Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.